Welcome to the Flannery Podcast. This is episode 67. In honor of Memorial Day, two brothers in war. Stay tuned. On Memorial Day, we remember those who served in war and acknowledge their sacrifice of time from family and friends, from young ambition, and from life itself, so that they could give to a nation to preserve and protect the freedom it represents. These recruits, the two I'm going to talk about, were almost always young, and that made their sacrifice the greater. Brothers Charles and John enlisted what many thought was the greatest war, the war against Hitler, a madman who respected no boundaries. Charles and John, their parents, were supportive. Irish friends kidded that perhaps they should be helping Hitler instead because to defeat the English after what the Brits did to Ireland. But they didn't take that serious for a moment. Charles went to Europe and John was stateside in the Army Air Force on ground crews fixing and maintaining aircraft. In fact, John spent the war trying to get into the action, into the shit. Charles fought through Sicily with General Patton's forces and then onto the boot of Italy. That's where Charles was taken prisoner of war. When they landed on Italian soil, they had to fight to take weapons from Mussolini's forces. Charles was standing by a truck after the fighting, safe, so he thought, when he was shot in the chest. The power lifted him in the air and sent him flying backwards where he lay until enemy forces took him away, made him a prisoner of war. John was distraught with the separation of war from his brother. He was a family man, a family newlywed man, a patriot for his country. And the price of that for him, as for many others, was separation from his new wife and his imprisoned brother. That was my dad. John kept trying to get to Europe to join the fighting and perhaps help his brother, but his service kept him pinned down in Texas and then in California's San Joaquin Valley. So many times, John and his family thought Charles was lost to the war. Charles' mom and pop aged with Charles' uncertain absence, tortured with the uncertainty whether he was alive or not. They were also afraid John might convince some CO to let him go over there, and then both of their children would be in the shit. The war ended. Brother Charles was released by the Allies. He was light, thin, like those prisoners in other camps, many of whom didn't make it. Charles didn't want to look like that again. He ate as if he were building up stores against his days in captivity. Never fat, always fit, always strong. Charles had not gotten the right treatment as a prisoner, and he became a walking, living, breathing man again physically, but yet he remained a casualty of the war, as was true of many. John's wife had a miscarriage after the war. They were going to call the child Charles after his brother. They considered this a bad omen. It was thus that I was named after my dad, John, and my younger brother, when he was born, was named Charles. 
A few years later, Charles died from internal bleeding from his war wounds. Charles paid the existential price of his service to his country. Another irony is they wouldn't give him the blood that he needed to perhaps survive that surgery. John looked upon his brother's face in an open coffin, and though dead, he had to see Charles one last time. Charles is now beneath a marble gravestone at St. Raymond's Cemetery in the Bronx, where my folks were from and where I lived as a young man. My father, John, is at Arlington National Cemetery with his wife, Rusty. Stay tuned. Winston Churchill defined the resolve necessary to fight the war, World War II. And there is probably not a person on the planet near any radio station, near any radio equipment, who didn't hear it. The world heard what he said, resolve. Listen to what he said in that war. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island, or a large part of it, were subjugated and starving, then our empire, beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. When we talk of war, we should put it in perspective. Mark Twain had this feeling. He wrote a sermon. It was a contrary sermon. It was a, a short play. And I, I did this. I performed this at a local church once as the person giving the sermon I'm describing. It's about the demons that God awards victory in battle to. Consider this. When you talk about the victor, and it's your side. You have to consider the other question. What does our victory mean to the other side? And we can always say it's deserved, but there are very few people who feel comfortable in this or maybe any generation going backward or forward that would say, other than World War II, that was a war that should have been. That was, quote, a perfect war. That was a war we should have fought. But imagine there's a service and the pastor has spoken to the flock and told them, we're going to go win this war and God is on our side. And then a person gets up from the congregation in a long flowing robe, robe walks up to the front of the congregation and with a touch 
dismisses the pastor and begins to speak. O Lord, our Father, our young patriots, idols of our hearts, go forth to battle be. Thou near them. With them in spirit we also go forth from the sweet peace of our beloved firesides to smite the foe. O Lord, our God, help us to tear their soldiers to bloody shreds with our shells. Help us to cover their smiling fields with the pale forms of their patriot dead. Help us to drown the thunder of the guns with the shrieks of their wounded writhing in pain. Help us to lay waste their humble homes with a hurricane of fire. Help us to wring the hearts of their unoffending widows with unavailing grief. Help us to turn them out roofless with their little children, to wander unfriended the wastes of their desolated land in rags and hunger and thirst. Sports of the sun flames of summer and the icy winds of winter, broken in spirit, worn with travail, imploring thee for the refuge of the grave and denied it for our sakes who adore thee, Lord, Blast their hopes, blight their lives, protract their bitter pilgrimage, make heavy their steps, water their way with their tears, stain the white snow with the blood of their wounded feet. We ask it in the spirit of love, of him who is the source of love and who is ever faithful refuge and friend of all that are sore beset, and seek his aid with humble and contrite hearts. Amen. And then this person walked out of the church and uh, it was believed afterwards in the writing of Mark Twain that the man was a lunatic because there was no sense in what he said. We know that when we declare a war, we take on this responsibility that all the things said by this stray, tall, surprising pastor are true, that all of those things are possible. There are refugees wandering across the world now. We just saw in the Middle East a, a bitter struggle that's been going on in the Middle East for our entire lifetimes. So we have to keep that in mind, that there's war, and there are some wars that can't be avoided and have to be fought. But we always have to keep in mind the humanity of how one does conduct a war without losing one's humanity. Stay tuned. General Patton talked after the war about what it meant to win against Hitler's Germany. Listen to what he said. That through our blood and your bonds, we crushed the Germans before he got here. The tail of the Third Army in the 19th Tactical Air Command of the 8th Air Force is marked by more than 40,000 white crosses, 40,000 dead Americans. I remember it as if it were yesterday, my mom crying. I was a young kid. The keening, the ancestral Irish wailing of her mother's people, a soulful wound disgorged by screams and tears when she learned 
that my dad's brother, Charles, died of internal bleeding. I'd never seen anything like that in my life, in my young life. As I said, my uncle Charles was shot in the chest in World War II in Italy and captured by the Nazis. Back at home, when it appeared he might die, Charles was denied a blood transfusion in a Bronx hospital. Years after the war, that of course our family believed would have saved his life. Vets know the unfulfilled promise of our government when the wars are over. It may not be a reason to avoid war, but it is a reason to fix the services owed and due to our veterans. And that's something we should think about on Memorial Day. President Woodrow Wilson promised that World War I would be the war to end all wars, but it wasn't. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces in World War II said, there is no glory in battle worth the blood it costs. That's close to that sermon that I read. That is saying in the negative what the cost of war is to whomever the enemy is for whom you seek to be the victor. Eisenhower got that right, but my uncle couldn't get the blood he needed to live. The blood it costs is the lost life of a spouse, a sibling, a child, a relation, a close friend, a loved one, leaving survivors bereft, keening, if you will, never to know those they loved alive again. We don't examine enough what it means, what death means. Each of us would likely risk our lives, perhaps without a thought, on impulse or instinct for someone we love, to risk our life for one who makes our life whole and meaningful. Indeed, we even do this for strangers, because there's something good about us that in that moment when somebody else might lose their life, we're prepared to risk ours to save them. The examples are legion. They happen all the time. But would you do it? Risk your life for a nation state hell bent on exploiting the resources or citizens of another nation. World War II was not that war. World War II seemed like the righteous war. But not all wars are righteous, or well-intended, or well-begun. The ultimate sacrifice is a function, an irrational moment, of whether one believes life ends with a pause or a full stop. A terrorist may make the reckless leap into the abyss certain that Allah will greet him on the other side. How certain, however, is anyone else that life after death resembles anything like the consciousness we now know. In this life we live, we know that a person becomes disconnected from himself and others by aphasia and Alzheimer's and memory loss because of lost brain function or nerve damage. Can a personal identity so intertwined with brain function and our nervous system exist as a daemon, as a soul separate and apart from our corporal self when we die? The enticing chimera of never-ending beatific vision after death is defied by everything we know. So risking one's life in battle for the nation state, for your family, for your friends, for a principle, is to give it all up because of something you think is more important than you to think that others are more important, an idea is more important, and we see it every day, and it's true. 
We could erect no finer memorial to our war dead and injured and to us the living and loving than to rededicate our nation to peace, to avoid that loss of life, to avoid that decision, that existential decision to risk ending it all fighting in war. We have been through uh, a national crisis in the last several years. We had a warmonger in the West Wing who took us right up to the precipice and dared other world leaders and ourselves to go to war or to fight or to take the risky things that could lead to war. We are redirecting our recent isolationism and nationalism, and that is good. Einstein considered both to be an infantile disease. He called it the measles of mankind. I think it's more severe than measles. Our past president formed dangerous alliances, like those his son-in-law secretly sought to build with Russia and his multi-billion dollar arms sale of sophisticated killing machines for Saudi Arabia. President Eisenhower said in his farewell address in 1960, quote, we must learn how to confront our differences, not with arms, but with intellect and decent purpose. We hope and expect that Biden believes the same thing. He seems to have said that so far and that he will follow that course. And for that, the nation and the world will be all the richer. In other words, we have hope for peace again. We have hope for community with our European friends and allies of years gone by. We have hope to take steps to negotiate ways of going forward with what other nations think of Iran want without risking nuclear holocaust. So we have hope for peace. And we have it because we have a change of view about our American destiny. Robert G. Kaiser, a Washington Post editor, wrote, the modern version of congressional culture is hostile to creative problem solving. He said, quote, in the world's greatest deliberative body, there is little deliberation. Well, he's got that right. And we see it in so many different quadrants of our public debate these days. But we must be smart enough to fight for, to make peace. We must deliberate. We must demand it. For the alternative is unimaginable. May you have a wonderful day with your family and friends and those who've served. And remember those who are no longer with us on this Memorial Day. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.